If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. To be honest, I don't remember their names. I don't remember her name. But I can never forget the funeral at which I sat for a young girl, 17 years old, who was murdered by her boyfriend and thrown into a well and covered up until she was found. Her parents were Christians, she was a Christian. What in the world is God doing? I'm sure it was a question going through many people's mind as we sat there with the family and weeped with them and mourned with them. You see, life is full of things that are hard to understand. And being a Christian doesn't always make it easy, although it does make it easier. And Habakkuk asks the question, what in the world is God doing? And when God answers that question, it brings up a second question. And that question is, why would you do it that way, God? If you haven't, as a follower of Jesus, yet, sooner or later you'll come to that time when you may well ask, what in the world is God doing? Where you may ask, why are you doing that, that way, God? And so this morning we come to the book of Habakkuk, Chapter 2, and hear what the Lord has to say to us. Last week we read, I will stand upon my watch, chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me. Father, I pray today that you would answer us. That you would speak to those things that concern us. That you would speak to the issues in our lives. That you would speak in a way that only you can speak. May your word have full fruition in our lives. May you be with the speaker and with all of us as hearers, I pray. Give us your help. We need it desperately. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So far, we've seen that Habakkuk one of the pre-exilic prophets, questions God about why, while violence and justice are rampant in Judah, God is not doing anything to stop it. In essence, he asks the question, what in the world are you doing, God? We only have to turn on the evening news and perhaps ask the same question. We had another school shooting this week. 
And we have to ask, what in the world is God doing? Why isn't God doing something? Why isn't God intervening? Why isn't God stopping what's going on? What in the world is God doing? Then we listened in as God's answer that he will use the notoriously wicked Babylonians to punish God's chosen people. We left Habakkuk last week waiting for God to answer his second question, which was basically, why would you do it that way, God? Have you ever found yourself wondering what in the world God is doing? Or why he's doing it the way he's doing it? I think if you're a person who thinks at all, sooner or later, if not already, that's come to mind more than once. There are those things that happen in our lives and in the lives of our loved ones and the lives of our country and the lives of our world that make us stop and wonder what in the world is God doing and why is he doing it this way? And Habakkuk says, I'm going to get above the issue, get above the problem. I'm going to climb as it were the watchtower and I'm going to watch and I'm going to wait for the answer of God. And God answers. Today in chapter 2 and verses 2 through 20, we look at God's answers to Habakkuk's questions, and I believe there's four that we can delineate. Number one, rest assured, my plans are sure. There is an outline in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Rest assured, my plans are sure. I will stand up on my watch, or verse 2, and the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain upon the tables that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. In essence, he says to Habakkuk, rest assured, my plans are sure. He says, I am going to give you a vision. It will be clear and it will be certain. He says, you can be sure that what I'm right is clear. And you're to make it so that someone who reads it can run and tell others that message. But not only does he say it's clear, he says also that it's certain. He says, it is for an appointed time. And though it seems to tarry, wait for it because it will happen even as I've said. You see, the plans that God have are both clear in his mind and certain as far as time is concerned. They will indeed happen in my time, he says. Sometimes we look at prophets and present-day prophets, and they say, well, the Lord's told me this, and the Lord told me that, and if this doesn't happen, then that's going to happen. If this doesn't happen, this is going to happen. And half the time, none of that comes to pass. But when God writes his plans in his word, be assured they will come to pass. Habakkuk, you're concerned about my people, 
You're concerned about the wicked Babylonians. I'm about to give you part of the plan. It's clear and it's certain. You can count on it. The word of God, everywhere it speaks, is clear and certain. We need only study it, understand it, and obey it. The second answer God gives to Habakkuk is rest assured, my people are secure. Notice verse 4, it's an interesting verse, actually the key verse of the whole book. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. He's talking about the Babylonians. But the just shall live by his faith. But the just shall live by his faith. Rest assured, my people are secure. They are not the proud and the unrighteous. The word that's used there is a word that it means puffed up. He says the Babylonians, they are puffed up. They're about themselves. We read last week that they think that their might is their God. He said, those are not my people. And then notice that three-letter word that's a very important word in Scripture. But the just shall live by his faith. It's not the proud and the righteous who are secure, but rather it is the just who shall live by his faith. Notice, first of all, that they are just. They are just. And here we speak of something of the righteousness of God that is imputed to you and to me. Righteousness is conformity to a standard. And the righteous are those who in heart and conduct are in true covenant relationship with God and what he requires. Notice this especially. There is no thought that this has come about by any intrinsic merit or achievement of theirs. It is the result of divine intervention and renewal. In Ezekiel 37, 27, the Lord says, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The just are just not because of who they are, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. Our justification is not something we earn. It's not something we work for. It is a gift of God. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Why are the people of God secure? Because their salvation is not something they got on their own, not something they can lose. It's a gift from God. The just shall live by his faith. He is a righteous God and a Savior. That is a God who is true to his covenant commitment and extends deliverance to his people. His righteousness is his salvation, and seeking the Lord is equivalent to seeking his righteousness. 
It is this divinely provided righteousness, right standing before God, that Zion is ultimately established and all the Lord's people are accounted righteous. It is achieved through the work of the Lord's righteous servant who justifies, that is, procures righteousness for many. Isaiah 53, 11. Having been brought into a right relationship with God, the righteous then serve him. I want to ask you this question this morning. Are you a righteous one? Are you righteous? I'm not asking you if you're better than most people. I'm not asking you if you're pretty good. I'm not asking you, you know, if you do more good things than bad things. I'm asking you this morning, are you a righteous person? And the only way that you can answer yes to that question is to have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior because he is our righteousness. He is the only righteousness which God will and can accept. He procured our righteousness on the cross. And this morning, if you belong to him, you are the just. You are the righteous. And so, it is achieved through the work of the Lord's righteous servant who justifies us. Are you justified this morning? Are you righteous in him? Notice that not only are they the just, but they are the just who shall live. We look at those words and maybe just kind of gloss over them, get on to the, the next meaty word, and yet it is an important word. The key clause, the righteous will live by his faith, sparkles like a diamond in a pile of soot. In the midst of God's unrenting, unrelenting condemnations of Babylon stands a bright revelation of God's favor that is quoted three times in the New Testament. In those passages, the word will live has a broader meaning than in Habakkuk. In the New Testament, they mean to enjoy salvation and what? What's it say? Talk to me. In the New Testament, they mean to enjoy salvation and eternal life. When does eternal life begin? The moment you trust Jesus. Sometimes we think of eternal life as being down the road, but eternal life starts the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So why are God's people secure? Because when they place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, in the promises of God, in the work of God, in the Son of God, and the plan of God, they are made righteous and given eternal life. And if God gives you eternal life, there's nothing you or anyone else can do to take it away. It's eternal. Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense. It's eternal. The people, God's people, are secure. No matter what's happening around us, no matter what's happening in our lives, no matter what's happening in our families, no matter what's happening in our countries, God's people are secure because of what Jesus has done for us. Rest assured, God's people are secure. They are just who live 
not only now, but for eternity. And then notice also, they are the just who live by his faith. By their faith, could be easily translated. But at the same time, we recognize that that faith, although a means to believe God's word and obey it, no matter how we feel, what we see, or what the consequences may be. Faith is the means to believe God's word and obey it no matter how we feel and what we see or what the consequences may be. That's what faith is. Faith is trusting God and taking him at his word and acting upon it. This is illustrated in Hebrews 11, that famous by faith chapter in the Bible. The men and women mentioned in that chapter were ordinary people. Read that chapter sometime. Some of them aren't even named. We see the kind of the heavy hitters that we're familiar with in the Old Testament. But there's a lot of people that aren't even mentioned by name, but who are made, uh, who are set up as examples for us to follow. Because they lived by faith. And they didn't have all the promises. They didn't get everything that God had promised in their lifetime. We've been studying in our open door Bible class that um, uh, Abraham, who in our timeline is going to die next week in our lesson, only had a grave plot and a field when God had promised him the whole land. But he still trusted God. You see, wherever you find yourself, whatever you're facing, the question is not whether or not you can figure it out. The question is not whether or not it makes sense to you. The question is, will you trust God? Even when you don't understand him. Will you rest in his person and his promises? That's what faith is. It has been well said that faith is not believing in spite of evidence. It's obeying in spite of consequence. Resting on God's faithfulness. My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. My faith is in him. My faith is in a person. And that person is Jesus, Son of God and Savior of men. To Habakkuk's question, what in the world are you doing, God? Why in the world would you do it that way, God? God answers, first, rest assured, my plans are sure. And then secondly, rest assured, my people are secure. Then notice the third answer in our text. In verses 5 through 20, we hear, rest assured, my pronouncements are steadfast. My pronouncements are steadfast. Notice verse 5. 
Yea, also because he, talking about Babylon, transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home, who enlargeth his desire as hell, and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth unto them. Shall not all these take up a parable against him, and a taunting proverb against him, and say, Woe to him that increases that which is not his. How long unto him that ladeth himself with thick clay shall they not rise up suddenly uh, that shall bite thee and awake that shall vex thee and thou shalt be for booties unto them because thou hast spoiled many nations all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee because of men's blood and for the violence of the land of the city and all that dwell therein first of all he says that his pronouncements are rest assured they're steadfast we like to sing of the steadfast love of the lord never ceases his mercies are new every day. And that's true. But let me remind you that the pronouncements of judgment and condemnation are just as true and just as steadfast. We live in a world that wants to talk about the love of God but doesn't want to talk about the woes of God. And in this passage before us, Habakkuk says to the unregenerate, not only of the Babylonians, but to the others in their day and in our day, there are some woes. And the God who always keeps his promises of love and fidelity and faithfulness is also keeps his words of judgment and condemnation to those who reject his son our Savior, Jesus Christ. First of all, he says, woe upon selfish ambition. That's success at any price. There are people today who worship the God of success. Whatever it takes to get there, whatever it takes to make it happen. And to that person, to those people, God says, woe. Judgment is coming unless you repent. The second thing he talks about is woe to dishonest gains, stealing, lying, cheating, whatever it takes to get ahead. And we live in a world where such things are not only done, but encouraged. I'm not going to read all these verses. You can read those. These were all very characteristic of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, but they also are characteristic of our world today. The third woe was woe unto the exploitation of people, loving things and using people. God says to those who reject his son and who instead choose to love things and use people, woe, woe. Woe. Woe unto unbridled pleasure, taking good things and making them bad. Taking the good gifts of God and misusing them. We live in a world, again, which the good gifts of God have been hijacked and used for unbridled and ungodly pleasure. 
That doesn't mean that we shouldn't have pleasure. God gave us the gift of pleasure, but he also gave us the boundaries in which to keep it. For instance, we live in a world today in which marriage is almost passe. As I watch television shows, I say, well, we've been together for 15 years, um, or we're, we're, we're looking for our first house and we want to start a family, and um, we might get married down the road somewhere. And we live in a world that has taken the gifts of God toward pleasure and toward happiness and toward goodness and use them in a way that is displeasing to him and wonder why or often wonder why we're in the mess we are, why things are the way they are. By the way, last I read, the divorce rate is down. Good news? Nope, actually bad news. Fewer people getting married, people just living together, doing their own thing. I mean, pastor, it's only a piece of paper. That's what people tell me all the time. And I said, well, if that's all it is, it shouldn't be any problem getting it then. If that's all it is, a piece of paper, let's go get one. We know down in the deep of our hearts it's more than that. It's a commitment. A lot easier to get out of a commitment when there's no piece of paper. What in the world is God doing God is keeping his word. He will judge sin. Sinners will not escape the judgment of God. Those who have rejected Jesus Christ will face an eternity in a place the Bible calls hell. That's not popular preaching these days. We'd like to talk about the love of God and the goodness of God and the grace of God and all of that I want to talk about. But don't forget, there is a hell and it is real. And our family members and our friends and our neighbors and our countrymen who have not placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are headed there unless they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. All the more important for us to share the good news with those around us. Woe upon idolatry in verses 18 through 20. It's the God of man's own making and therefore his own rules. I've never heard so many people talk about God in my whole life on TV everywhere about spirituality, how spiritual they are. Well, I'm a spiritual person. But as my friend used to say, it's like saying, I love Jesus. The question is, which Jesus do you love? Is it the Jesus of the Bible? Or is it the Jesus of your own making? And though most of the people in our world today, although there are some who do, don't bow down to a shrine or to a God made out of wood or metal, they bow down to the gods of their own will and of their own making. And so he says, woe, woe upon the exploitation of people, woe upon unbridled pleasure, woe upon idolatry. 
Habakkuk says, what in the world are you doing, God? Why are you doing it that way? And God answers him, rest assured, my plans are sure. Rest assured, my people are secure. Rest assured, my pronouncements are steadfast. And then finally, rest assured, my purposes are set. You see, God has a purpose in everything he does. Everything that God does has a purpose. And three of them are illuminated for us in this passage. Number one, my grace shall prevail. Verse four, God's people are secure. Ephesians four, or two, four through 10. Let's just turn there real quickly. Ephesians two, four through 10. Right after Galatians, this is what he says. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, have quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we shall walk in them. How does God's grace prevail? Because at the end of time, he will show the myriads of men and women and boys and girls that have been transformed by his grace. His people are his trophies. It is not the things of this world that last forever. It is the people of God who are with him forever. Those are the trophies of his grace. It is his grace which will prevail. And then notice, secondly, he says, my glory shall prevail. Back to Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 14. He says, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God says, don't worry. You may not be able to figure out what I'm doing. You may not understand why I'm doing it the way I'm doing it. But my glory will fill the whole earth in its time and in my way. I think part of that will take place when Jesus, King of Kings, comes and sits on the throne of Jerusalem and rules and reigns for a thousand years. Part of it will be further fulfilled when we move to that new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. And throughout eternity, the earth will be full of the glory of the Lord. God says, rest assured, I have a purpose. My purpose is that my grace shall prevail in the lives of men and women and boys and girls who are transformed by it. My glory shall, be, shall prevail. 
people will see me for who I really am and what I have done. We saw part of that glory this morning as we listened to the scriptures from Job and looked at just a part of God's beauty. Not too long ago, a couple summers ago, I stood at the Grand Canyon and something that doesn't happen to me very often is I was just speechless as I sat there and looked at the grandeur of that canyon. But what God still has in store for us is more beautiful than anything we've seen yet. That's astonishing to me. I can't even imagine what that means. I can't even imagine how wonderful that will be. My grace shall prevail. My glory shall prevail. And then finally he says, my government shall prevail. Notice the last verse of our text. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The temple is his throne room. It is from where he accomplishes all of his purposes and all his plan. And scripture says that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. And in that day, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. Hey, this is a world of sorrow. There's struggles. There's questions. There's heartache. There's pain. There's suffering. There's persecution. Boy, that's a great message right before lunch, right? But I remind you, joy comes in the morning. It's the old gospel song, in that great getting up morning, fare thee well, fare thee well. It will be worth it all when we see him. Because our trust was not in our understanding. Our trust was not in our ability to figure it out. Our trust was not enabled to hold on and hold tight. Our trust is in him and a person. And that person is Jesus. Rest assured, my plans are sure. My people are secure. My pronouncements are steadfast. And my purposes are are set. Who can stand, stay, excuse me, the hand of the Lord? And of course the answer is no one. And so this morning, as we come to the conclusion of our message, we ask this question. Isaiah 53 is a great passage. Reminds us that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And so on and so forth. And it says that when Jesus Christ gave his life on that cross, that God looked at that sacrifice and accepted it on behalf of you and me if we are willing to place our faith and trust in him.
Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. So this morning, if Christ is your Savior, thank him and trust him with your present in your future. If you say, I don't understand. You don't have to understand. How many times did you say to one of your children when they were small, just trust me? You didn't try to explain every single thing to them and how it all worked. You just say, trust me. And there are those things in my life that I cannot figure out. Don and I have had things happen in our life that are not easy to understand in the light of who God is and what he promises, except that I know that I can trust him even when I can't understand him. I can trust him even when I can't figure it out, when I can't see the end from the beginning because he does. He understands, he knows, he sees, and I can rest in him. And so this morning, if you belong to Christ, you have reason to thank him. That in the midst of craziness, in the midst of unexpected, unwanted things, God is still in control. He's still sitting on the throne, not only of your life, but of the world. And you can trust him, even if you don't fully understand him. But if you're here today and Christ is not your savior, you still have reason to thank him because he died for you. And he is willing to receive you if you will repent of your sins and place your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. He died for you. There's no greater gift than the gift of salvation that comes through Jesus. Call upon him, trust him. Trust him with your past. No matter where you've been, what has happened, he can forgive you. Trust him with your present. No matter where you find yourself right now, he can redeem you, not only from your sins, but ultimately from your situation. And trust him with your future. It comes down to trusting him. Verse 20 says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's pray together.